At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our series, Newish. Everything's changed, have you? Where we're celebrating that in Christ, we have been given new life. The only question is, are you living it? Let's turn to Romans chapters five through seven to decipher whether we're living in Christ's freedom or trapped in the patterns of our old life. Jesus, we do offer all of our worship to you, all the adoration, all the praise, all the glory, anything that we could ascribe worth and value to, anything that we can muster up in what you've given to us today, we want to bring it all to you, we want to give it all to you, because the only reason it is here is because you have granted it to us. So may we be good stewards of the praise that you have already put in us by offering it back to you in the mighty name of Jesus. I thank you that we can gather here in worship. I thank you that we can gather here to sing our praises to our King. I thank you that we as a spiritual family on mission are here side by side, hearing the voices of our brothers and sisters raised up to our Father. I thank you that we can be here under the sovereign ministry of your word that your word is timeless. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your word, O Lord, will remain forever. So teach us from your word right now. Please minister to our minds, our hearts, our souls. Minister to every part of our being today by the power of your word, by the sovereignty of your kingdom, by the endurance of your faith, and through the Holy Spirit of the living God. We pray that you would speak as you always do. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray these things. Together, we put our hands together and say amen and hallelujah. Let's give God praise, church. Hallelujah. Thank you so much, worship team. Let's give God praise for our worship team for leading us in praise. And our children can be released into kids' ministry. So let's give a round of applause for... Oh, no, no claps for the kids. That's okay. It's all right. We're going to get there. Uh, our kids, it's so important that our kids worship with us. It's so important that your kids get to see you worshiping and they see good and godly examples of men and women offering praise to God. So as they are making their way out and the worship team, praise God for them, is making their way off the stage, uh, I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles right away to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 is where we're going to be today. We're going to be in verses 7 through 25. Uh, so because the projector still has no power coming to it, that means you have to have a Bible in your lap today. Amen? Okay. If you're saying you're reading it behind me, you aren't today, okay? I know, right? There's Bibles right here at the Connect desk. Kathy, uh, if you could please grab some of those. If anybody needs a Bible, a hard copy book, those are still real things that you can read in your Bible or you can pull out your device, but it's so important that you have the Word of God in your hands today. Uh, not only so you know that I'm not lying, but it's the middle name of the church you're at. We are Woodside Bible Church. So I have a question. Have you ever experienced pain from something that was supposed to be good for you? Have you ever experienced pain from something that was supposed to be good for you? You know, if you've been tracking with us, we've been in a series called Newish, uh, Everything's Changed, Have You, where we've looked uh, for the last seven weeks through Romans chapter five and six. We made our way to chapter seven uh, last Sunday, and we're gonna wrap up the series and the chapter 
today, and we're going to see how everything's changed, but have you. We walked through condemnation. We walked through justification. We walked through sanctification, and Paul is continuing to tell us how God is sanctifying us, and there has been so much over the last three, four weeks particularly, including this one, where Paul has had a lot to say about the law. Now, now what is the law? In its most formal sense, what Paul is talking about is the Mosaic law uh, or the mitzvot that applied to Hebrew men, 614 to 1,000 commands, depending on what camp you fell in. Paul was a zealot, a pharisaical zealot, so he had 1,000 commands that he upheld on his life. The standard Jewish man, 614, that is the law in its most formal, traditional nature, but it's really all of God's commands, isn't it? It's all of the Ten Commandments. It's all of that which Jesus has said. The law is summed up in these two great commandments, right? So we're looking at the law, but Paul hasn't really had a lot of nice things to say about the law, it feels like, right? If you've been tracking with us over the past few weeks, it seems like Paul's kind of upset at the law. It seems like the law isn't actually any good, and uh, it's supposed to be good for us, but it seems to just cause pain. So this is why our text today is a little confusing. You can say amen, right? It's a little confusing, the back half of Romans 7, probably one of the top three or five most difficult to interpret sections of Scripture in the New Testament, but we're going to walk slowly, carefully, and intentionally through it so we can understand what it says. But it's also highly important because Paul is getting to the good for us, virtuous intention of God's law, right? And he has a lot of things to say about it, and he's going to get there. And it took him a while, right? In chapters 3 and 4, he said, the law brings wrath. That doesn't sound very good, does it? He says, the law can't save anyone. Only faith through Christ can save you. That doesn't really sound too good about the law either. And by works of the law, no human being will be justified. So let's, Paul needs to sort of remake a case that the law is indeed good for us. Because if the law brings wrath, knowledge of sin, can't save us, then why was it given in the first place? This is the question that Paul is wrestling with, and he does it through two questions. We're going to have two points today, two questions that Paul is asking in the text, and two questions that we're going to ask today. Is the law sinful, and is the law death? Is the law sinful, and is the law deathly? And we have to do careful thinking in order to do justice to this difficult text, uh, but let's not ever forget the ultimate goal and the ultimate purpose to sitting up under the ministry of God's word. Right? We are not here today to fight with God's word. We're here today to wrestle a little bit with God's word. We're not here today to try to make us make sense of the word. We are here today to try and have the word make sense to us. If something ever shows up in the Bible and you say, oh, I don't like that, I need to figure out a way around it. There is a problem with you, not a problem with the Bible, right? So this is what we have to get to. This is where we have to go. And this is why we have to start this way. Because if we ever find anything in the text that seems confusing to us, we need to pray, God, break me over your word. Do not break your word so that I might understand it. Break me over your word. Because the goal of God's word is that we would be deeply convicted by the spirit of God, deeply comforted by the presence of God, pierced to our souls, aware of our sins, completely lost before a holy God in a desperate situation in need of an exclusive deliverance that comes through one person alone and his name is Jesus Christ, right? So as we evaluate this difficult text, we have to remember why are we going to the word of God? Because it is that which will bring life to us through Christ 
crucified and the power of the Holy Spirit of the living God. So, two questions today that the text acts of itself. Is the law sinful and is the law death? We're going to cover a lot of scripture, but we're going to chop it up into digestible pieces today. Uh, So we're in Romans chapter 7. We're going to read verse 7 through 12 to try to answer the question, is the law sinful? So Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law has said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. So again, we're going to kind of deal with Paul seeming almost like schizophrenic, like there's a civil war going on inside of him that he's contradictory at times, but we're going to, again, chew this up in bits and pieces. Is the law sinful? Is point number one in the first question that Paul asked of the law in the text. And what does he say right away? Absolutely not. By no means. No way is the law sinful. But as we first kind of dive in here, we need to figure out who exactly is Paul talking to and who exactly is Paul talking about. That's probably the most difficult thing for exegetes or theologians or Bible scholars to figure out about this text because there's a lot of uh, law in here about 24 to 30 times in chapter 7 and in the beginning of 8. There's a lot of reference to sin in here three dozen times. A reference to I. Is Paul really just talking about himself or is this a principle that exists all the way back to Adam as he wrote about a couple chapters ago? Is this a principle that exists even up to today? Is he talking about Adam? Is he talking about Israel? Is he talking about himself? Is he talking about you? Is he talking about me? Who is Paul talking about? Paul wrote this section of scripture in such a general way that I think it's almost impossible for anyone to read it and not identify with the struggle he's outlining. He's talking to all of us. This is written in the present tense, in the living and active word of God, and this text of scripture is written to Adam, to Israel, to Paul himself, to every person ever who has attempted salvation by means of the law rather than by means of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so I'm going to repeat that. This section is written to every person who's attempted salvation by means of the law, rather than grace through faith in Jesus Christ, right? So it includes God-fearing Gentiles who were not Jews, who didn't have the the law of God they were raised in in the first century. It includes every person who has propped up a creed, a code, a religion, an internal law that you live your life according to. Paul is writing to all of us, and there's an argument that he's building that every single one of us is right here. Every single one of us has a law in our mind. Now, again, the traditional ceremonial sense of the law he's referring to is the Hebrew law. That is primarily what Paul is referring to. But the law in a larger umbrella is any system or code or rules or religious activity that we undertake to try to receive salvation 
other than through Jesus. So Paul then says, is the law sin? Absolutely not. But then why does he seem to contradict himself and tie the law so closely to sin, to death, and all these other morbid, terrible things? Pain is included in the law. If it's not sin, then why does it hurt so much? And I think a great uh, and simple illustration for us today, uh, again, the first question I asked, have you ever experienced pain from something that was meant to be good for you? How many of you have ever been to a dentist? Right? Are dentists generally good for us? Say amen if you agree. Say amen if you absolutely love to go to the dentist. There's a couple people, right? There's a couple really good rule followers here, right? Where you're like, yeah, of course, it's good. I'm going to go do it. Now, has the dentist ever hurt you? Say amen. Did the dentist put the cavity in your mouth or did the dentist merely exist to reveal to you there is something that's hurting you and I need to do some work to heal you, right? So the law can be looked at much like a dentist, right? Is there a problem with dentists or dentistry? No. Some of us maybe with some trauma in our past might say, yes, they're all bad. No dentist is good. That, that is not what Paul is saying. And anybody who is a dentist or has dentists in your family, by no means am I saying dentists are sinful, right? Uh, but dentists merely exist to show us there's something going on inside of us that we need to work on. Paul is saying, like the dentist, God's law is good for us. But if you introduce an error at some point, like sin or a cavity. I'm also not saying cavities are sin, so just say amen. Amen? Okay. Then the dentist's function is going to feel like it's working against you rather than for you. So, for those of us that have sin in our life, which is all of us, the Bible sometimes feels like it's working against us rather than for us. I'm never going to be able to measure up to this, so why would I? If this exists to show me sin in my life, why would I want this, right? And you can begin to understand that when you walk this uh, model of thought, why we have so many people propping up their own secular, irreligious self-governance, right? Propping up their own code or moral law they live according to. Propping up their own system of religious beliefs or values. But then in verse 5, Paul says something that is, it would be shocking to his original audience, and it should jar us a little bit. In verse 5, he says, while we were living by the flesh, our sinful passions, they're already there, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear the fruit of death. So Paul says, while we were walking according to the flesh, the law came in, and in fact, the law actually stimulated sin in us. So again, is the law sinful? Is this a bad thing? It seems like it's a bad thing, right? How could God's holy law, the Mosaic law, which Paul believed was the word of God, which every Jew that he is writing to believed it was the word of God, I'm assuming even some Gentiles at this time, even though it's very early on in, in the first few centuries AD, probably about 57 AD, they knew that the, that the Mosaic law was the word of God. But how could the word of God stir up sin inside of somebody? How could the word of God, something good, arouse sin inside of us? Paul uses the rest of chapter 7 to explain. The law does not cause sin. It only reveals sin. The dentist did not put the cavities in your mouth. He only exists or she only exists to treat them. So in previous chapters, Paul has helped us to understand what sin is. 
Sin is not just missing the mark. That's what the word means in and of itself, that it is simply missing the mark. But more than that, it is a power that seeks to control us, right? It is an enemy, a slave master that seeks to keep us in chains, keep us in bondage. And it entered the world when Adam and Eve uh, allowed sin to enter into them, and every human being ever has been up under the sway of sin since then, that there is from our first parents, this hereditary problem that we have where sin uses the law against us. You need to hear this. Sin uses the law against us. So the Bible is not against you, but the sin that lives inside of you makes you think the Bible is against you, makes you think that the law is against you. Paul gives an example of the 10th commandment, right? When he says, the law said you shall not covet. And Paul says, I didn't even know what that fully was until the law told me. And then it aroused all this covetousness inside of me. That once I heard that this was a problem, then I saw all this stuff living inside of me. You know, I think it's a a lot like this, right? Um, Finding Nemo. How many of you have seen it? How many of you are thinking about an orange clownfish right now? How many of you walked in thinking about Nemo today? Something becomes introduced, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, now I see it. Now I'm thinking about it. I would have put Nemo up on the screen, but the projector died, so I was just supposed to talk about it today, right? And the same thing happens with God's commands. And we really got to slow down for a minute to really get to the bottom of this, the core of this. When Paul saw the law said, you shall not covet, it stirred up covetousness inside of him. Not only did it reveal there was covetousness inside of him, he says, as soon as I knew the commandment, sin used it to produce in me all kinds of covetousness. We're all guilty of sin, and we're all guilty of covetousness as well at some point in our life. And if you are guilty of covetousness, a great Bible scholar, Stephen Lawson, says, if you have broken the 10th commandment, you've broken every other commandment. Because if you have coveted after something, chances are down the road you're going to break the rest of the commandments, right? If you covet after something, then you are not satisfied with God. So he become, that, that thing becomes an idol, right? Coveting doesn't stop when I say don't covet, does it? Right? How many of you are, are parents? Your children, does their behavior stop the minute you say don't do that? The bad behavior. You can shout absolutely not. They're not in here. It's okay, right? They are testifying against themselves with their behavior, but that's okay. Just because we see something, that doesn't mean it stops right away. Why? Because when we hear about it, we start thinking about it. And when we hear about it, especially something we can't do, what is the first thing that rises up in your heart when you hear, you can't do something? Watch me, (laughs) right? Why? Because that is what sin is. At its very core. At its very core, sin is us, just like Adam and Eve, trying to assert our independence from God. So when we see the law raised out for us, and we begin to have a problem with the law because we feel convicted by the law, or we don't like certain things in here, that is the war of our day. The war of our day is not, is the Bible true or false, right or wrong? The war of our day is, the Bible doesn't work for me. It's not, people will even acknowledge God as holy and good, but I don't like it, so it doesn't work for me. Or it rubs up against my feelings the wrong way, so I don't want that, because I want to feel good. Sin at its very core is us trying to assert independence from God. So when you hear, do not covet, the first thing you say is like, oh, okay, 
I'm going to do, I'm going to go get what I want to get. That's what sin is living inside of us. So in verses 9 through 11, Paul says, the law existed to reveal this to me. The law is like a giant spotlight shining on the sin in my life saying, there it is. It's right there. God's calling it out in his word. It existed in me because sin exists in me and it used it. Sin distorts and uses the law to show sin more brightly, to deceive us, and then ultimately to kill us. The law becomes a magnet that pulls us further away from God and further into sin, but the law is not the problem. The problem is the sin inside of us that is killing us. So how can Paul get to verse 12? How can he get to verse 12 after verses 7 through 11 when he says, okay, so the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Still, it seems like Paul's contradicting himself. Still, it seems like what, he doesn't even know what he's talking about. Why would I want to listen to this or read this? But we have to catch the distinction. We have to catch the differentiation that Paul is doing here. He is saying that the law is good for you just like it's good to go to the dentist and realize what's actually going on inside of you. You need something or someone to shine a spotlight on the thing that lives inside of you that's killing you. And it might not feel good, right? Most people who have gotten chemotherapy say it feels like they're dying. But they're getting chemotherapy, why? Because they had a positive diagnosis of something inside of them that was actually killing them. This is what the law is. It, it, is, it, it hurts us sometimes. It's working on us because it is drawing out the thing that lives inside of us that's killing us that is part of this war, right? So Paul says, is the law sinful? Absolutely not. And then he has this awareness of the commandment of you shall not covet. It produced in him all kinds of covetousness because sin in him is fighting against God and because it's shown as a spotlight onto the sin that already exists inside of him. So what does he say that led to? Death. It led to deception and death inside of me. And through this commandment, sin killed me. So again, if you're struggling to figure out why was the law introduced at all, I think you're right in line with a lot of people, even Paul right here, right? Paul's like, why is this? He's working this out right now as he's writing this letter to the church in Rome. So if we've never really like chopped this up and chewed on this and really tried to figure out what's he saying and you're struggling with it right now, that is good. We need to be doing this, right? Struggling with the word of God, wrestling with the word of God is the most important thing you're going to do today. Amen? For some of us, I, again, it's we have to understand what's going on inside of us. That when we see something in the word and we don't like it, so we stray away from it or shy away from it, that is not a problem with the Bible. That is a problem with us, and you know what that means? It simply means one thing. We don't really love Jesus like we say we do. If we have a problem with the word, we are not in love with Christ. Not if you're struggling to understand something. If you have a problem with it, if you're like, I don't like that part. It simply means you're not fully in love with Christ. And this is what Paul is getting to. So he says, through the commandment, sin killed him. And then he asks this second question, is the law death? And we read verse 13 through 20 together. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means, or absolutely not. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin may be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. That's the spotlight. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. 
for I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it is no longer I who am doing it, but it's the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So is the law sinful? Absolutely not. Is the law death? Absolutely not. Paul is saying, did that which is good, the law, the dentist, actually bring death to me? No, it was the sin that is inside of me. It was the cavity that they worked on that, yes, it hurt me, but we find, again, a key purpose of the law here. It is to reveal that which is already inside of us that needs to be worked on, that needs to be filled, that needs to be cast outside of us because wrongdoing, missing the mark, and knowledge of sin, knowing you're doing it, are two very different things, are they not, right? It's just like with children. I I am working on this, and you can pray for me. Uh, Disciplining my children for disobedience rather than disciplining my children for being children, right? Now, for some of you, like, that actually hits hard, and that hits you as real. If you have boys, right, sometimes you think what they're doing is wrong, but they're just being children, right? Stuff's flying all the time. Judah found what I presume to be chocolate on the floor last night and I watched him rub his finger on it and eat it and he walked away and I was like, he seems okay. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get on him for that. I don't know what's going on, right? But it's discipline for disobedience rather than discipline for being a child and making an error. Wrongdoing, missing the mark, or knowledge of sin, doing something that you know to be wrong are very different things. And how does this often happen? It often happens with the Bible. The Bible is the thing that shows it to you. One of the very first scriptures uh, that I memorized when I was a new Christian was Hebrews 11.6. And, and really the beginning part just struck me so deeply. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And for me as a young man, I was like, I want to do whatever I can to please God. So thank you for giving me a very clear equation for how I can please God. Faith. Now I used to think that self-faith and self-reliance and confidence in yourself, standing on your own too, that's a good thing, right? That I can do this. I can fight against these things and I'm confident in who I am and I'm going to stand up. And with that faith in me, I can please God. But then I understood what the scripture really says. It does not say without faith in Ryan, you can't please God. It is talking about the faith that is for God alone. So, while I was mildly aware that I was deeply prideful prior to Scripture, Scripture came in and revealed to me just how deeply prideful I was and just how far away I was from this commandment found in the law. And my pride was revealed to me on a new level because the spotlight of Scripture shone on the sin that was living inside of me. So when I memorized that verse and saw that we are then to draw near to God, Believe that he exists so that he will reward those who earnestly seek him. That is what I was looking for. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Then you should draw near to him. Believe he exists, and then he will reward those who earnestly seek him. But I thought, right when I heard that verse, it was about faith in me. Like, I'm going to be strong. I'm going to be tough. 
I'm never going to sin again. Right? How many of us have ever thought that? Wow. Okay. So this scripture, when it came to me, it revealed something that lives inside of me. And I had a choice to make. Do I want to continue to do what is right in my own eyes? Or do I want to allow the law of God to shine a spotlight on my sin so that it can be worked on? So that the cavity can be filled, so that the healing can begin to happen. And I think these verses, which are hard to understand in any language, right? I read it in English, then read it in Greek, then transliterated it from Greek to English, which is probably the most difficult thing to possibly do is to read this and think it's going to make any sense in any language. This doesn't make tons of sense. But I think it's Paul's way of capturing the confusion that exists inside of humanity. How many of us have ever wondered, why is humanity seemingly so confused? Why does it seem like we just can't seem to figure it out? Why does it seem that otherwise decent people can come together and create a completely toxic work environment? Why is it that spouses that seemingly love each other can end up so unhappy and disconnected from each other as they go down the road of marriage and parenting and raising kids and then they look up one day and they realize, I don't even know who you are? How is it that we can do things and champion things that are dehumanizing to others and destructive to ourselves, but we carry on thinking we're okay? This is Paul capturing the confusion. Again, the schizophrenia. The split personality, split-mindedness, split-heartedness, split-willed of living a life under sin. Paul sees this split within himself. This is what he's doing. This is what he is like confessing in the end of Romans 7. He's saying, here is where I was. I was somebody that had a thousand measures of law to upkeep, and I did better than anyone else. And I had the best teaching of the law, and I knew the law inside and out. But I'm realizing none of this ever could have saved me. So he sees this split inside of him. He sees, I just want to do the right thing and I want to be a good boy and, and follow the rules. And then I'll be good. But he sees this isn't how it works. This isn't how Jesus Christ works. And this is where we're all at. On the one hand, Paul has the law of God. The law of God teaches him the will of God. And he's able to say, that's what I want to do. He's able to look at it and say, this is what I want to do. This is how I want to live. I see it. It's good. It's healthy. It's true. It's pure. It's everything I want my life to look like. And, and with this in one hand, he is on, on the other hand. I know there is the power of sin that lives in me, and it's pure evil, and it's seeking to kill me, and I keep doing it. I have this, and I know I want to do it, but I have this too. And this is the only thing that's allowed me to look at this and hate it, and see that I don't want it, and see that I don't even want to live like this anymore. But the deep struggle he finds himself in is the deep struggle that many of us have found ourselves in, or maybe even do find ourselves in today. Why do I keep doing the very thing I hate? Why am I still enslaved by this thing that I know is bad because I have what's good. You know if you're married, it's wrong to flirt with your coworker, even if it's subtle, but it still happens. You know taking opioids will kill you one day, but we still do it. 
We know gossip is a poison that murders communities, but somehow we can't seem to keep other people's name out of our mouth. How is it that we know what is good and right, but we still do the very thing we hate? What is that? Why is that? What is wrong with humanity? We have all these good laws. We have all these good rules to follow. There's a universal principle Paul is teasing out from God here. Law simply can't overcome the flesh. That the law simply exists to reveal to you, yes you, it includes me, just how messed up you are. This is why law is introduced. To show us, actually by grace, how messed up we are as humanity. This is what God gave us law for. To say, I'm actually going to protect you because you will do much worse than the thing that I'm trying to show you is wrong. And, and it's not just that Paul thinks other people have stronger moral will than others do, right? He's not saying, like, some of you just aren't strong enough. Because even the strongest among us have a breaking point, amen? And even the people that stand up and just do all the right things by the sheer strength of moral willpower, they're usually the most prideful people on the planet, right? Because they can't point to anything other than themselves for why they're doing it. For, like, oh, I'm, I just must be stronger. I just must be better than you. I just must be smarter than you. That's why I don't make that mistake. That's why I don't live in this zip code. That's why I make this salary with this amount of commas. That, I just must be better than you, right? That sounds pretty prideful, doesn't it? Sounds like the broken commandment. So like, what does Paul conclude? If we look at the law and we see that it reveals our sin, he says it's not sin though. He says, the law showing me my sin killed me. <laughs> But is it death? No. What's the answer? Verses 21 through 23. So I find it to be a law, a new law he's introducing, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Why? Because I delight in the law of God in my inner being, in the very core of who I am. But I see in my members or my body another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me a captive prisoner to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So he's saying, there is a civil war going on inside of me, that I see what is good and right and pure and holy, and I want to do that, and I really do, in the depth and core of who I am. That's what I want, but I keep doing the very thing I know I'm not supposed to do. I keep doing the very thing that I hate, and civil war breaks people and things and places up that are meant to be together, but turns them into warring factions, enemies. And civil war never leads to life. It only leads to death. That's the predicament of those who find themselves in this law, sin, death cycle. Law, sin, death triangle. That if this is what I'm propping up, to save me. If this is what I'm propping up to say that I am good, there is something in my inner being that delights in it, but sin is always going to punch law in the face. Sin is always going to attack like a virus or a parasite and say, you are not good enough to do it. Whatever you think it is, whatever you prop up, there is going to be something that is going to prove to you there's split personality disorder going on inside of you. There's a civil war going on inside of you. And this is Paul's conclusion, that there's something raging inside of you leading to death. It's a pretty desperate situation, right? So Paul, in this confession, in this like, manifesto about the sin, law, and death that he was encountering, 
Like the desperation is thick here. He's like, what am I supposed to do? How do I do this? And how does it not lead to meaninglessness? If I can't do this, and it's just going to continue to show the thing in me that's killing me, why do I even try? And then he kind of gives like this shout of pain. And I think this is where all of us, if you've authentically put your faith, hope, and trust in Christ, you landed here at some point in your life. Verse 24 says, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am. Again, Paul was the most learned among Pharisees. Wretched man that I am. Paul was a zealot for the law. He upkept a thousand while everyone else tried to upkeep 600. That's how good he was. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? He knows the law can't deliver him. That's his confession when he says, who will deliver me? He put his hope in the law as a Jew. It's what Israel put her hope in as God's chosen people, as God's chosen uh, nation. That's where their hope was put. It's where every religious person throughout history has trusted for deliverance. Some creed or constitution or belief or self-code or dogma. It's what every secular irreligious a group of people that is going on today propping up virtue signaling saying here's why we're better than them but it all falls apart how when one group of people thinks they're better than another group of people and they have the right to autonomy and self-government governance and then all of a sudden it just falls apart the results always the same whatever the law sin will come it will pounce on it and you will scream maybe through tears internally or on your knees at this altar today. Wretched person that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Now at the end of this diatribe, right, what do you expect Paul to say? I expect Paul to put the pen down and say, peace, I'm out. I'm not trying this. I'm not even going to do this. I'm not strong enough. I thought I was the best. I'm not. I'm done. I'm all done with this, right? Meaninglessness, bleakness, hopelessness. That's what we expect to see from Paul. But what does he say? After all of this, really since chapter 3, after all this, what does he say in verse 25? Thanks. I'm like, what? Hold on, Paul. This doesn't make any sense. How is it you just go through all this and the next word is thanks? Because he gets an answer to the question. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. No principle can deliver you, only a person can deliver you, and it's Jesus Christ alone. No stacked up law book can deliver you, it is only the promises of God stacked up upon each other, which all get their yes and amen in Jesus alone. Where the law fails, Christ prevails. That's the answer for us today. That no grouping of I'm better than this group of people because I follow these rules is ever going to be enough to deliver you. You're always going to say, wretched woman that I am, wretched man that I am. What can I do? How can I fix this? And then your response when you see the Lord high and lifted up is, oh, thanks. <laughs> Thank you to God through Jesus, our Lord. So as the worship team comes back up on stage, I just want to leave you with three statements, okay? Just three statements that we're going to land on today. One, the law is good 
but it will never make you good. The law is good, but it can never make you good, right? So uh, as citizens of wherever we are, right, a neighborhood, a city, a county, a state, a country, humanity, we should strive for good laws that mirror God's law. Yes, we should absolutely strive for that. But no book of law will ever create a perfect society. No amount of laws will ever make people good. Sin exists inside of them. The law exists to show them that they have broken it. We can't be deceived into thinking that if we just get the right people in office who make the right laws, then we'll all be okay. That is from hell, friends. That is a deception from hell. The only way this can happen, only God's king can do this in his kingdom because where the law fails, Christ prevails, right? So the law is a good thing, but it can't make you good. The second thing I want to leave you with today, if you're a Christian, say thanks. (laughs) If you're a Christian, praise God Christ has freed you from sin. Just say thanks, right? That you're going through all this stuff and all this pain because, in fact, this section of Romans does not describe you. And that's the, that's, this is the hard part for us. This is the dissonance we have to deal with. This section of, of Romans is not meant for people who have been freed from the law. But why does it feel so much like me? This is what you have to answer today in your own heart. Because this section of scripture was written to someone as someone who was still caught in the law-sin-death cycle. In the law-sin-death triangle. Either you live by the law and sin has taken its toll on you and you feel like you are being led to death, which you feel right now partially, but you will feel forever eternally separated from God. Or you live by faith in Jesus and you realize you've been freed from the law, sin, death cycle and God has set you free and you have tasted what it feels like to be fully alive and though you've only had a taste now you will one day forever when all eternity experience the fullness of this now again you may be struggling and saying well that's me this is me I do the stuff I hate what hope is there what answer is there there's only one answer friends thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord You are no longer trapped in sin if you are in Christ. This is what I've been trying to get through to us, right? This is what we're pounding from the pulpit, right? Will you likely sin again? Yes. Do you have to? No. You don't have to if you're in Christ. Is it almost inevitable? Yes, because we have this civil war going on inside of us, trapped in this body of flesh with sin, waging war against our members. But please... Understand, Romans 7 does not describe your union with Jesus Christ. Romans 7 does not describe your union with Jesus Christ. This is not how Christ views you. He views you as set free. He views you as no longer sold under the law of sin. You are not sold under this law. You are no longer a slave. You are legitimately set free. Even if you can't understand, why do I do this very thing I hate? You need to calibrate towards freedom instead of calibrating towards condemnation. Because we're about to get to the worst chapter break in all the New Testament, in my opinion. Romans 8.1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you feel bad, you say thanks, and then you say thanks again for Romans chapter 1. Thank you that I'm free. I've been set free. The law is a good thing, but it can't make you good. If you're a Christian, say thanks.
say thanks, and praise God that Christ has set you free from sin. And the last thing I want to leave you with today, we're going to sing a song called Intentional. It's a very high-level song. It's got a lot of upbeat stuff going on in there, really beautiful lyrics as part of this song. And over and over again, it says, he's intentional. You're intentional. I'm singing to you, God. So if there is pain and sin and death and law wrapped up in you right now and you hate the law and you hate me for talking about it, God's intentional. He brought you here on purpose. He wants you to hear this. He wants you to hear you live out this struggle of why do I keep doing the thing I hate? Because he wants you to say thank you to him. Can you see Jesus Christ high and lifted up? So the last thing is, if you're not a real Christian, and I say real Christian not because real Christians do all the right things, amen? That's called real, legal, real legalism is what that's called. If you're a real Christian, you've authentically put your faith, hope, trust, your life, all your possessions, your whole family, every fiber of your being, you've given it over to Jesus, and you said, you take this, because I can't anymore, okay? Now, you know that you know that you know if you've done that. If you don't, you haven't, okay? And, and I, I'm not going to apologize for being stark, because this is the most important thing that I could possibly talk to you about. If you don't know if that's you, it's not. So meet with him today. If you're not a Christian, run to Jesus today for deliverance. Sprint to Christ today and say, I'm done with this law. I'm done with these rules. I need you, Jesus. Even if you don't even know what that means, run to him with your arms open and you will meet him with his arms open and he will receive you. And even though you don't have all the knowledge and you can't quote a word of scripture, he will receive you with open arms and an open heart and say, thank you. Now let me teach you. Let me show you. Because I've never met a single person, regardless of background, regardless of success, that doesn't identify with the civil war going on inside of them. I've never met a single person, person after person, time after time, successful or not, who doesn't resonate with this civil war. But what I have met over and over and over again, people in the church and people outside of the church, is folks who feel hopeless. Folks who feel, I can never change. And no one else can ever change either. They're going to keep hurting me the same way. I'm going to keep doing the very thing I hate. There's no hope. There's no help. Run to Jesus today. If you find yourself projecting a confident persona, but inwardly you're crumbling and you know it, run to Jesus today. If you find yourself standing up on your code, creed, religion, law, whatever it might be, and that's what makes you better than the next person, run to Jesus today. And you can run to him anywhere. You can run to him at this altar as the band gives you music to do it to. It's always more dramatic to run to music, right? <laughs> but if you're not a Christian, please, please, Heed the encouragement. Sprint to God today. Sprint to him today for release. Sprint to him today to where you can say in back-to-back -back sentences, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then you go to, thank you, God. This is salvation, right? This is what he is saying. I'm free from all of this, and now I'm free to all of this in Christ. Where the law fails, Christ 
prevails. We're going to sing this song called Intentional. I want to invite you to your feet. I want to invite you to run to Jesus today if you don't know if this is you or not. I want to invite you just to say thank you if God has given you his son as your savior and you have received and realized that. I want us to know that only he can make us good. So Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you loved me. That, you look, that, that I wrote Romans 7 in my own life. I looked up and said, how on earth can you be God if I keep doing this? How can you be good if this keeps showing me how wretched I am? And you showed me, Jesus, high and lifted up, looking at me, saying, I did this for you, and I still want you. So I pray today that we would all look at Jesus, high and lifted up. We would look at our Savior upon the cross, and we would see how beautiful he is. We would look at our Savior that took all the penalty for the breaking of the law so that we could have all of the fullness of his presence found in obedience to his glorious good news. We praise you. We love you. And we agree that you are intentional, bringing us right here, right now, for your good, for your glory, by your grace, that we might see the real King of Kings and we may lock eyes with you, Jesus, because you're good. We love you, we praise you, we thank you. We ask all of this in your holy name, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Let's give our God a shout of praise, church. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.